0: Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history this week. On the agenda, going to be having a chat about the USS William D. Porter. This was a, a destroyer. ...that belonged to the US Navy in the 1940s, and I'll tell you this, we are well and truly getting back to the core competency of half-assed history today. It's a beautiful dovetailing of two of our very favourite things on this podcast, naval history of course, we do have a lot of nautical history, and stories that are so unbelievable that you'll think they're made up. This one really does hit both, uh, you know, it hits both of those notes very, very beautifully indeed. So uh, we're going to get across exactly what happened here. The um, uh, the USS William D. Porter, it was the victim of, uh, Geez, all sorts of stuff happened to this, this poor old ship. It was the victim of a, of a bizarre kamikaze attack. It fired artillery shells into the front yard of an American naval base one time, and uh, most famously of all, nearly killed Franklin Roosevelt. So... Quite a uh, quite a, a a real comedy of errors, the poor old uh, poor old William D. Porter here, and uh, I mean, yeah, the the most famous the headline here, of course, is uh, FDR himself was nearly killed by the ship, and hundreds of others I should mention nearly killed in 1943 uh, by the crew crew of the William D. Porter, and uh, and again, that's in addition to plenty of other utterly bizarre and ridiculous misadventures that took place on uh, on this journey and others that it went on. The whole story, honestly, it sounds like a bloody episode of Mister Bean. Mister Bean goes to sea with uh, mishaps and blunders and whatever else happening all over the place. But all of it's true. All of it's 100% true. All of this actually happened, and the ship and its poor old crew seem to be cursed with misfortune, as, as you'll discover. So let's get underway. We'll get underway with the story of the USS William D. Porter. Strap yourselves in, and I'll tell you what, clamp that jaw shut as well, because it's going to hit the bloody floor once you, uh, once you hear this stupid story. So here we go. We're going all the way back to 1942 here, when on the 27th of September, the USS William D. Porter was launched. So it was built and then launched uh, as one of the many ships that was sort of hurriedly cobbled together by the United States after their delayed entry into the Second World War, better late than pregnant, obviously, and uh, it was properly commissioned and deployed in July of 1943. It was named after William D. Porter, oh, obviously, I mean, obviously, but what? who else was it going to be named after? It was named after William D. Porter, uh, who was a, a US Navy Commodore during the American Civil War. Now, I did do some digging, try to find some, you know, an interesting little sort of like nice little snappy fact about this bloke to share with you, and um, Nope, just a bog standard military career. Uh, his dad was a famous admiral who defected to Mexico. He got injured a couple of times, had to take some time off. He was a flag officer at one point, but uh, really nothing particularly funny or interesting there. A bit of a handbrake on the old on the old fun train, actually. Uh, even bringing him up, really. So William D. Porter, thanks so much for leaving a legacy that is just, by all accounts, doing history no favors by you know being undeniably boring through and through. Good on you there, old son. Anyway. The first mission of the ship, uh, the William D. Porter, uh, was a top secret and critically important assignment. It was so secret, in fact, that the crew aboard the ship didn't even know what their mission was as they set sail on the 12th of November in 1943. Its crew, by the way, also were mostly fresh-faced youngsters. They're teenagers, a lot of them. Many of them not even 18 years of age. They've lied about their age to get on the ship, uh, and this was very typical at the time. Sure, you know this young men all over the world racing to the battlefields of the Second World War, despite uh, you know being many of them not even being proper adults yet. And the age and the inexperience of this ship's crew is very important, as you'll discover. They were hardly given any time to train properly or anything like that, and and that that uh, that proves to be uh, very very interesting, very very important in the story, as uh, as you'll as you'll see. Anyway, on the 12th of November. The uh, the William D. Porter, it's sent off on its mission uh, to escort the USS Iowa, this enormous big battleship across the Atlantic. Now it gets off to a rather ominous start here, not the most positive beginning, I have to say, because the William D. Porter, as it left its berth in Norfolk in Virginia, it ran uh, ran a little close to the ship next to it, like an idiot in a tight uh, car park space there. and the Porter actually snagged its anchor on the ship uh, on the ship next to its neighbor. And, and it's torn this great big bloody hole and it. it's ripped off its railings, some lifeboats, uh, all sorts of other equipment and stuff there uh, on the way out. And despite this, despite, you know, doing a whole bunch of damage to the ship next to it, the, the porter itself wasn't damaged at all. Just a, a few scratches on the old anchor there. Sorry about the mess, fellas. You know, we're off on our secret mission. Catch you later. Sorry about the all them railings and whatever else. Not a good start to the ship, but as you might well and truly be, well, you, you'll definitely be expecting this. It only gets worse from here. Anyway. The William D. Porter was one of uh, one of many vessels sailing alongside the uh, the Iowa. and uh, unknown to the crews of of all of these ex escort ships there, the size and the power of this convoy uh, is very much due to uh, the cargo that the USS Iowa was carrying because before setting out the crew of the Iowa, right? they were they're they're very getting very confused. they they're really scratching their heads. They've got a real puzzler about why a bathtub had been installed on this huge battleship. Why the bloody hell they're saying? Why the bloody hell has this luxury item, a luxury like a bathtub? Why is this being put on a, you know, on a first-rate battleship that's supposed to command the seas here? And it was because the USS Iowa had been charged with transporting President Franklin Delano Roosevelt across the Atlantic to Northern Africa to, in order to meet with uh, other leaders of, of the Allies, Churchill, Stalin and, and others, for a series of war conferences. Now, of course... This was kept as a secret from most of the from most of the world, really, but especially all the crews of the of the ships involved. But when this gigantic battleship jettisoned most of its fuel in order to creep into the Chesapeake Bay without running aground, and collected. The president and eighty of his so eighty or so of his staff that have snuck down the Potomac River on a uh, on on a, on a, on the presidential yacht there, word started to get around. All of a sudden, the business with the bathtub is starting to make sense because uh, poor old FDR, who he'd been paralysed from the waist down since the nineteen twenties, very into uh, hydrotherapy he was, and he needed the bath for the trip, which was going to take over a week. And of course, after picking up this uh, very important, very famous bloke, and uh, you know, as well as the rest of his retinue, word started to get around the ships but even though it was uh, you know a tight lid was kept on the on the purpose and the mission uh, of this voyage but um, so Roosevelt, he sneaks aboard the Iowa, and then the Iowa went off to meet the escort vessels that would be taking it across the Atlantic. These vessels, there were two aircraft carriers and three destroyers, one of which was the William D. Porter. So we had the uh, the aircraft carriers to take care of, you know, anything, any threats from the sky. And these destroyers were uh, were on uh, anti-submarine duty, while looking to protect the Iowa from, uh, from any attack from under the sea. And all of these ships were kept under strict orders to maintain radio silence and keep a low, uh, very low profile while sailing. So you won't be surprised to learn that all of the crews of these ships, they knew that something was up. Even if they didn't know that they were escorting President Roosevelt, all the secrecy or the radio silence and the tension amongst the uh, the ranking officers told them that they weren't mucking about here and that this was very serious business indeed. Anyway, the convoy starts zipping across the Atlantic at top speed. The the ships are all going hell for leather uh, to get to their destination as quick as possible. The engines are being pushed to the max here. Unfortunately, however, the William D. Porter could not put a foot right. Within the first few days of the journey, it's already embarrassing itself with a series of ridiculous blunders. Check this out. First of all, on the 13th of November, just one day into the journey, there was an enormous underwater explosion amongst the convoy. All the ships are on high alert already for an attack by German U-boats, uh, which were known to you know patrol the Atlantic. And uh, and this explosion, it caused the convoy to swing into action, engaging all of the, uh, the defensive anti-submarine protocols straight away. That was, of course, until the red-faced crew of the William D. Porter signaled to the the other ships that they had, if you will believe this, they had accidentally dropped a depth charge off the side of the ship. Someone hadn't left the safety on the charge and so it had just fallen off the side of the William D. Porter and exploded. Now luckily, no one was injured, but I tell you what, it didn't do any favors for the crew of the William D. Porter and this was only the beginning Because shortly after the depth charge business, an enormous rogue wave swept over the deck of the porter, washing one of the unfortunate sailors overboard, never to be seen again. Oops. And uh, after this, just moments after this, uh, this rogue wave one of the ship's engines lost power meaning the Porter fell behind the rest of the convoy. This was not a good look for anyone involved not just the captain and the crew of the William D Porter obviously, but also the commanders on the Iowa who have been charged with this you know incredibly important mission uh getting uh, getting uh, Roosevelt across the other side of the Atlantic all of a sudden it's turned to this uh, you know into this bloody clown fiesta. It's like when, you know, the big boss comes into work for the day and everyone's scrambling around trying to make everything seem perfect. And all of a sudden, you know, things just don't stop going wrong. So very, very bad look here. The bloody president, is there, he's, you know, hopping out of his bath and he's seeing all this nonsense go on, bloody disaster for everyone it was. So much so that the bloke in charge of this whole convoy got in touch with the the captain of the William D. Porter, this bloke, his name is uh, Wilfred A. Walter. And uh, Captain Walter, he was told to pull, pull his head out of his ass here and, and get off, or get on with running his ship without making a total goose of himself and everyone else, thank you very much. And uh, he didn't. However, this is the long and the short of it, uh, Captain Walter did not do a very good job of this at all, because on the very next day, on the 14th of November, the crew of the William D. Porter nearly killed President Roosevelt, along with everyone else aboard the Iowa. You know, as you do. The convoy had just passed Bermuda, and the bloke in charge of the Iowa had uh, offered to demonstrate uh, the battleship's defensive capabilities to the president and his staff. So they ran a series of exercises and drills, they launched some uh, target balloons up into the air, and then the Iowa shot them down, simulating, obviously, the response to an air attack. But some of the balloons, however, drifted over towards the William D. Porter and anxious to redeem himself, the, uh, the captain ordered that the, the, the Porter start to fire on these target balloons there, you know, showing off a little bit. Now, the crew does a great job, blasts them all out of the sky. You know, brilliant, bloody, you know, a bit of a golf clap from the president there. The arm, their arms are getting sore from patting themselves on the back so much. Well done, fellas. But as we all know, Pride cometh before a fall, and this fall ended up being quite a bloody big one, because after shooting down the balloons and after demonstrating their defences against an attack from the air, the William D. Porter decided to flex a little bit and show off their defences against an attack from the water. As a result, the crew began to run through a torpedo drill. This uh, involved the simulated launching of torpedoes against an enemy target after obviously having removed the the, the primers from the torpedoes themselves so they wouldn't actually fire. And you know, obviously, without the primers firing, quote unquote, the torpedoes, it, it, it should and well, and would do nothing. They'd just sit there and not launch. No worries. Now, obviously, this the fact that I'm sort of laboring this point is obviously, you know, probably triggered a, a a little bit of a recognition in your mind that that isn't exactly how things went because even though this is a drill and even though they won't be firing any actual torpedoes the torpedo crew they still need a target to aim at and so they use the iowa as it's this great big target that's nice and close by and so they you know pretend to lock onto that and they're getting ready to you know to 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 simulate the firing of these torpedoes The drill gets underway, the bridge officer, you know, the torpedo men are all lined up there, ready to go, fingers on the buzzers, and the bridge officer yells out, fire one, to the torpedo crew, who obviously simulate the firing, off it goes, no, well, off it doesn't go, that's the point, off it doesn't go, that, you know, just simulation there, so perfect, fire two, again, press the button, pretend the torpedo is off on its way, easy game. And then Fire 3, and this time there is a huge whooshing sound as a live torpedo is launched from the William D. Porter, streaking towards its target, which, let's remind ourselves, is a U.S. battleship currently carrying the President. Somehow some way, the William D. Porter has just fired a live torpedo at Franklin Delano Roosevelt and everyone else on board the Iowa. Unbelievable. And panic grips the crew of the ship. They've only got a few minutes before the torpedo hits the target. And battleships are not known. Interesting piece of trivia about battleships. They're not known for their deft maneuverability. So, timers of the essence. Everyone leaps into action to forestall this absolute disaster, or or tries to, rather, because you'll remember, the convoy is under strict orders to maintain radio silence. And this means that the William D. Porter can't just get in touch with the Iowa via radio and say, oh, listen, um, real quick here, sorry about this, fellas, but we kind of accidentally fired a torpedo at you. Yeah, look, long story, just chuck her into reverse for now, I reckon, and try to swerve out the way, what do you say? Instead, Captain Walter orders the signalman to send a message to the Iowa warning them of, uh, of what, what uh, has happened there so they can, uh, they can take action. Now, remember... I mentioned the youth and the inexperience of the crew on the William D Porter. I mean, you know, we've already got some idiot who has fired off a, a torpedo for some reason, but here's where we really get into the uh, the inexperience of these uh, of these poor these poor young blokes here because this this green signalman, right? He's an absolute, you know, he's a, he's a he's a fresh-faced, dewy-eyed, bushy-tailed recruit here. And uh, I'll tell you what, he doesn't know his ass from his elbow because he does his best to transmit the message, but he's so panicked and so poorly trained that he stuffs it up beyond belief. He stuffs up the signaling and instead tells the Iowa that there there is a torpedo in the water traveling away from the Iowa. Great start. I mean, really good. Nailed, nailed the beginning of that. Torpedo in the water, very important piece of information. And then the exact opposite part to bring it home. The torpedo was, in fact, not headed away from the Iowa, it was headed right to the Iowa. So, a little bit of a problem there with that signalling. So, Walter, the captain, immediately realises the mistake. He says, No, 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 mate. start again, old son. You've you got to get it right this time. The signalman, he's ordered to, you know, do it. He, he's, he's, you know, flustered and stressed out of his mind and go, Oh, bloody hell, what am I going to do here? And this time he signals, of all things, that the William D. Porter is now traveling in reverse at full speed. That was the signal he sent for some reason. Don't worry, fellas, we've just chucked her into reverse. We're out of here. I mean, I don't know how naval signaling works, but that is a hell of a typo. I tell you what. Anyway, Captain Walter by now, he is, uh, he is truly desperate. He, you know, he's cacking his dax, he's having a terrible time, and he contravenes the orders for radio silence and radios the Iowa. He breaks the radio signs, he instructs the battleship to turn right immediately to avoid the torpedo. And this happens at exactly the same time as the lookout on the Iowa itself spotted the torpedo speeding through the water. And so now it's the Iowa's turn to leap into action. They chuck the engines into top gear and throw the battleship to the right, bringing the guns around to shoot at the the torpedo as well. The battleship it turned so fast and so hard that the pitch of the ship it leant so far to the left as it tried to veer away from the torpedo that poor old Roosevelt who, remember he's he's in a wheelchair he had to be grabbed by his bodyguards so he didn't, you know bloody roll or tilt off the side of the deck because he's on the top of the deck he'd been watching that uh, you know, the, the manoeuvres or the, the, the drills he was going to bloody roll off the side of the ship there so the Secret Service bodyguards they grab him one of them rather heroically but also kind of pointlessly pulls out his pistol and tries to shoot the torpedo with a handgun, so I mean, a for effort, I guess. There, good stuff from you, you know. At least you did your best, anyway. Despite its lumbering size here, despite the you know how huge the Iowa is, it is straining to get out of the way of the torpedo. The guns are unable able to stop it, they can't shoot the torpedo. The engines are blasting away in a desperate attempt to avoid the disaster. And despite the size of the the ship, as I say, this enormous big floating behemoth, as you might have already guessed given the you know course of history you're probably familiar with, the Iowa just managed to squeeze itself out of the way of the torpedo, which sped off for, onwards for a while before exploding harmlessly some way off. It missed the Iowa by a few hundred meters a bloody close shave but after the Iowa's guns have finished firing on the torpedo once they've recognized the uh, you know the uh, the threat is uh, has been avoided and then the ship isn't going to be sent to the uh, to Davy Jones locker here once those guns have turned away from the uh, torpedo they turn straight over to the William D Porter they are aimed squarely at this battleship that or at this uh, destroyer I should say that has fired the torpedo at the battleship. The Iowa is extremely suspicious now that the William D. Porter has just botched a, an attempt to assassinate Roosevelt and radios to demand an explanation. And there just isn't one. Captain, Captain Walt, he's going around, he's grilling the crew. What what happened here, you absolute idiots? What am I going to tell these blokes on the Iowa? But his crew, no one seems to know what has happened. No one seems to know how this has taken place and how this mistake was made. But the Iowa—they're not having that. They're not taking any excuses. The the, uh, the commanding officers are extremely concerned about uh, about treachery, about traitors, subterfuge, and uh, uh, and you know that sort of thing. And, and as a result, they refuse to allow the William D. Porter to sail alongside the president any longer. As a result, it is booted out of the convoy and Captain Walter is ordered to turn around and sail the ship straight to Bermuda. So the presidential convoy, it continued on without the William D. Porter, and Roosevelt obviously landed in Northern Africa safely, where he took part in the Cairo and the the Tehran conferences. But that's another story. We're going to focus on the William D. Porter and what happened after it got back to Bermuda. Because the ship follows its orders, heads back to Bermuda where it was met. It was greeted, uh, you know, as it it pulled into harbour by a contingent of heavily armed marines who immediately arrested the entire crew on suspicion of treason. The crew was then subjected to a lengthy interrogation as there was obviously a lot of suspicion that an enemy agent had infiltrated the ship and was working as a saboteur and and, as as a a would-be assassin. And uh, this was, I mean, you know, this is not the normal sort of uh, the, the welcome home that sailors get when they're uh, coming off, a, a you know, a, a battleship or a, or a destroyer like this. Very, You know, that, it's not sort of what they would have expected, but as it was, they were frog marched and, uh, and locked up by these Marines who then, of course, uh, you know, cross-examined them at length to find, to get to the bottom of what had happened. The inquiry lasted three days, during which the, the entire crew of the William D. Porter was subjected to question after question after question about how Just how they managed to fire a live torpedo at the President's ship. How did this happen? And ultimately, the truth finally emerged. One of the torpedo men, whose name was Lawton Dawson... Had just stuffed it all up. He'd stuffed it up beyond belief. This bloke, Dawson, had tried to lie at first when he'd been questioned. He just he just told him a couple of porky pies. Said, "Oh no, I don't know anything. Don't know how it happened." But eventually, he broke down and he told the truth. He actually he, he he finally broke down and told him what had actually happened. There, he had taken the primers out of the other torpedoes and therefore rendered rendered them harmless. But he'd forgotten to remove it from the third torpedo, the one that fired. And he he just couldn't account for it. He had accidentally just completely forgotten to disarm this torpedo before the drill. And when he had realized what he'd done, when he'd realized that he'd put a live primer in this torpedo that was then fired off at the the Iowa, he had taken the used primer and he chucked it overboard when no one was looking so as to hide the evidence. This poor bloke, he's just 22 years of age. And like so many other of the, you know, the young fellows there on the ship, he hadn't had the proper time and training and he didn't know how to do his job properly. But all the same, Dawson had nearly killed the president and he wasn't going to get away with it. He was sentenced to 14 years hard labor for this mistake. The poor bastard. But thankfully. He never actually had to serve his sentence. When Roosevelt heard about Dawson's punishment, he actually intervened personally to have it commuted. And uh, so it turns out that uh, Dawson actually—I well, guess he did get away with it. Yeah, he did get away with it after all. Oops. But after this whole incident, after this whole in- incident, you can uh, you can imagine that the reputation of the William D. Porter that obviously just just—I mean—absolutely deep sick. Even if they didn't manage to sink the Iowa, they did manage to sink their reputation, and uh, and and they've never really quite recovered after this. Uh, you know. Very, very embarrassing incident where they nearly killed the president. After news of this accident spread, uh, the ship would be greeted, be hailed by other uh, other U.S. Navy vessels by they would say, "Don't shoot, we're Republicans," which I I, I think is a, a is a pretty good line uh, considering FDR obviously a, a Democrat. There, So I, I think it's it's pretty funny. Anyway, given the ship's uh, terrible reputation and uh, and a real desire to get the whole you know nearly kill the president thing out of the spotlight. The William D. Porter was reassigned. It was redeployed this time to the Aleutian Islands off the coast of Alaska. Part of the reason it was sent there was because it, it you know, thought the ship couldn't do any real harm while tucked away in the freezing North Pacific. And as you've already guessed, oh my goodness, this was not the case at all. So after returning briefly to, to, to Norfolk, the William D. Porter was sent to the Aleutian Islands uh, via the Panama Canal. They stopped in California briefly to pick up some, uh, some cold weather gear. And then headed up, uh, headed up to Alaska, uh, where it had relatively dull patrol and, and escort missions to carry around, you know, scouting for Japanese activity in the Pacific, uh, submarines and and, and aircraft and, and all sorts of stuff. Pretty pretty boring, stock standard stuff there. But it did give the crew the chance to uh, actually, you know, benefit from a bit of training here and there, and get to know what jobs they were supposed to do. And uh, and as a result, for a while there, it was uh, pretty smooth sailing. In all seriousness, though, the the crew actually did uh, whatever they could to try to fight the you know the terrible reputation that the ship had by now, and and they actually acquitted themselves pretty pretty well for well, for a while there. Anyway, uh, you know they're again going around doing all these uh, you know patrols and escorts and whatever else, pretty boring stuff. But one night, however, one night, one of the sailors has come back to the ship after a night in the turfs. He's pissed out of his head, and he decides that he wanted to, he wants to fire the ship's guns just for a, a bit of a laugh, mate. I mean, look. There have been a lot of questionable decisions fueled by alcohol over the years, but this one, it is right up there. Um, fire, firing a naval destroyer's guns is an extremely unsafe thing to do at the best of times, yep, by design. That's obviously, you know, that, that's not a bug. That's working as intended. Naval huge big guns on ships tend to be pretty bloody dangerous. But when you've been on the source... I reckon it becomes, you know, a fair bit worse. I would say, Uh, you know, just a little bit more dangerous. I reckon. Anyway, this sailor he's had a skinful and he's ready to have a bit of a giggle, and so he sways his way to the firing station. And before anyone could actually stop him, he manages to fire off a twelve and a half centimeter shell. He doesn't aim at anything in particular. He just he just raw dogs it straight out into into the darkness, and it lands, of all places, in the front yard of the home of the naval base's commander. It bloody wrecks his flower garden, and it scares the ever loving bejesus out of all the officers and their wives who are about who, who are around at the commander's uh, you know place for for a bit of dinner and a few drinks. All of a sudden imagine that. You're at this fancy party when out of the sky a great big bloody shell drops down the front yard, it'd be bloody terrifying. I mean it's bad enough when you know the neighbours and kids chuck balls over the fence. Imagine a, a five inch shell coming down and uh, you know and blowing the petunias to bits, bloody hell. Anyway. The relative peace and quiet of patrol and escort duties, it finally came to an end for the William D. Porter uh, towards the end of the Second World War, uh, when the war in the Pacific began to uh, to ramp up. The U.S. was so desperately in need of firepower while fighting the Japanese in the Pacific theater that uh, they even had to mobilize the William D. Porter. That They are scraping the bottom of the barrel to the point that they are mobilizing even this poor old ship here for combat duty. But look, I have to say the ship and its crew actually excelled themselves this time around. For the back half of 1944 into 1945, they did a terrific job. They cut about the Pacific. They were present at a bunch of smaller skirmishes and battles. Nothing too famous. Nothing that sort of, you know, changed the the course of world history too significantly there. But ultimately, the William D. Porter was sent to uh, Okinawa to aid the invasion effort there. And this, I'm sorry to say, this unfortunately was where uh, the poor old William D. Porter finally met its end. On the 10th of June, 1945, the ship was off patrolling the waters around Okinawa, scouting out for Japanese aircraft. Because at this stage, of course, the Japanese, they're still using kamikaze planes, these small, lightweight aircraft that are filled to the brim with enormous amounts of explosives, more than enough to to sink a ship like the William D. Porter. Very dangerous indeed. And so, uh, you know, the the Porter is out scouting about and, and, and trying to keep an eye on things. And on the morning of the 10th, at about quarter past eight, The ship came under attack from a detachment of these kamikaze planes. Now, immediately, the ship's crew swing into action, properly trained they are now. They know what they're doing. They man the guns and they start to attempt to shoot down the planes before the planes could ram into the ship. One plane peels off and makes a beeline for the William D Porter there clearly intent on ramming the ship and sending it down to the briny deeps so the ship's gunners they they wheel around in the uh, with the guns they start firing and firing at the plane as it as it as you know as it drew closer desperately trying to blast it out of the sky as it as it as it you know bore down on the ship there and then success the the guns they find their mark and the low-flying kamikaze plane it takes a fatal hit and skids into the water right at the last moment but Before the crew of the William D. Porter could celebrate this very close shave, however, a massive explosion takes them all by surprise and lifts the ship clear out of the water, damaging it beyond all hope of repair. You'll never believe what happened. Check this out. The Kamikaze plane was flying so low, so close to the ocean surface, and it was going so fast that when it was shot down, it continued on its trajectory underwater and slammed into the hull of the ship beneath the surface of the ocean, like a bloody flying fish. It's just gone junk under the uh, under the surface of the ocean. Continued on at full speed and blasted into the hull of the poor old William D. Porter. It was the the, the ship became the victim of an underwater kamikaze attack. How ridiculous is that? Unfortunately. The ship started to take on a good amount of water. It had to be abandoned. They, they made attempts to repair it, but it was just, there was no hope of, tr- of trying to make her seaworthy again there, poor old William D. Porter. But here's the good part not a single crew member died. Not a single life was lost. Not a single hand drowned there as the ship was evacuated. Every single sailor was safely rescued by other US vessels that were nearby before finally, at long last, the William D. Porter sank below the surface and slipped down to rest on the ocean floor. For a ship, That fired a torpedo at a US president, shot a shell at a naval base commander, and finally succumbed to an underwater kamikaze attack, the William D. Porter suffered an incredibly low death toll. In fact, the only bloke, actually, the only bloke who has died throughout our entire story today, apart from the poor old kamikaze pilot, was that poor fella who was washed off the side of the ship by that rogue wave. After almost killing President Roosevelt, after being sunk by a shot-down kamikaze plane, after everything that happened to the William D. Porter, it's unbelievable that the unluckiest bloke in the whole story was the one who was unceremoniously swept from its deck after a rogue wave, the poor bastard. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of the USS William D. Porter. I can't believe I'd, I'd never heard of this. I, it took me so long to discover this story. I really can't believe I'd never heard of it. Because again, just the perfect combination of half-house history. Nautical nonsense. Absolutely love it. Anyway, that's that for this week. The normal boring housekeeping stuff is coming your way right here and right now. If you're one of the people who skips it, bon voyage, I reckon. You're missing out on an absolute cracker of a, of a question here. Anyway, we're going to close things out, of course, with the, uh, with the housekeeping nonsense here. Uh, first update is the merch update. Of course, that is all speeding its way around the globe. Uh, there are a couple of people who need to update their um, uh, update their their addresses on Patreon. If you haven't done that, please do. Uh, the shop, the storefront, will be opening in December. I've got a couple of things lined up for the rest of the month. That means that I'm not going to be able to attend to orders until then. So, uh, unfortunately, December is now what we're looking at for the opening of the Half Ass History shop. You'll be able to buy uh, you know all your swag and loot there. Don't even worry about that. And uh, apart from that, just the uh, just the other you know boring stuff about half hour history being the website. You can find old episodes there. You can subscribe on uh, on iTunes. Spotify. Oh, actually, actually, I need to ask you a favour. Um, if you got the time, could you jump on iTunes and actually leave a review? I was talking to some people about, uh, you know, the stuff you need to do to, you know, have your podcast, you know, pick up the numbers and whatever else. And apparently iTunes reviews are just the best way uh, for them to, uh, you know, for it to get more and more exposure. So if you've got a chance, I'd really appreciate if you could jump on iTunes and, and leave a little review there. And, uh, and that'll apparently help the seo number bloody search engine algorithm i don't understand it but i've been told on good authority that's what you should do so if you get the chance to do that i'd really really appreciate it um and if you want to get in touch as well of course you can do that uh, there's a there's a contact form on the website and it's always great to hear from people so please do uh, please do keep uh, sending those emails in and, and if you're uh, if you're one of the people who's getting that uh, merch bundle let me know what you think of it as well uh, i know it's not not a huge amount of stuff but you know i hope i hope you enjoy it all the same anyway Enough nonsense for me for this week. Thanks for hanging out. We will be back next week, of course, with more nonsense, more half-hour history. So I'm looking forward to, uh, to hanging out with you then. Closing things out, of course, with a question posed on Reddit here. Reddit historian Yetkinler has a question. We talked a little bit about uh, kamikaze pilots today, and Yetkinler has a a very interesting question about them. Here's here's something to think about. Why are there no well-known kamikaze pilots alive today?